You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Well, it's an impressive sight, the Pacific Ocean. I feel like Balboa, the Spaniard who first named this place. <laughs> yeah, it's really beautiful, those waves crashing over there. The horizon just seems to extend forever. People look like they're enjoying it. Hey, there's a sand dollar. Yeah, well, inflation is probably only a sand quarter. Hey, it's also <laughs> impressive to think that this view hasn't changed in a long, long while, Molly. Vast expanses of water are part of Earth's history, after all. The oceans go back four billion years, maybe more. You hear the seals? Yeah. Well, wait, Seth. The Earth is, what, four and a half billion years old? So does that mean that there were millions of years when the planet was without water? Well, it's hard to imagine, Molly, but it's true. In its infancy, Earth was just too hot for liquid water, not to mention life. The ground was molten. So before the oceans, Earth was just a big, hot rock. So how did the Pacific Ocean, or really, how did any of the oceans form? Well, what you're really asking is, where did all this water come from? Where's all this water come from? Okay, well, the exact details are still a bit fuzzy, but there were two sources of water vapor in those distant early days. There were various gases that just boiled out of the Earth's interior, kind of like a volcano. And those gases included methane, ammonia, carbon dioxide, and water vapor. But a lot of this water came from comets, too. Icy rocks from space that slammed into our planet and melted and filled up the low spots. That Pacific Ocean there, that's uh, mostly comet juice. Look at the surfers out there. They come so close to the boardwalk piers. Yeah. But I guess they know what they're doing. Well, they're I, pretty daring. You think they feel the peer pressure? <laughs> well, the Pacific Ocean um, is also over the Pacific Plate. Right. 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 And the Pacific Ocean is, of course, the largest of the world's oceans. About 170 million square kilometers. Wow. That's a, well, it's a lot of liquid assets. And, of course, that's just this ocean. Hey, wow, watch, watch out for that jellyfish. Are there actually jellyfish? Yeah, there are actually jellyfish, and that's one of them. <laughs> it's hard to believe that humans could have any effect on such a massive and ancient feature as this ocean here. Well, well we have. The oceans are changing. Overfishing, pollution... And most of that change has taken place in just the last 50 years. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to the Pacific Ocean on Are We Alone? We're here on the beach in Santa Cruz, California. And this ocean, like a lot of our oceans, is ailing. But as our oceans change, so does our understanding of how they're changing. And so there's hope for their recovery. And we'll hear about it in the show. Hey, Seth, have you ever been diving? You mean other than in dumpsters? Actually, I don't look good with tanks on my back. Sometimes I slip my head down under the water in the bathtub, rinse off the soap, a few inches of water above my head, that's okay. But uh, I'm not spending time with tons of this watery stuff above my head. Well, there are some people for whom that description is home sweet home. I'm Sylvia Earle, explorer in residence at the National Geographic, founder of the Deep Search Foundation. That's the economical description of Sylvia Earle. And the rest wouldn't fit on a business card. She's not just an oceanographer. Sylvia Earle has led more than 50 undersea explorations and has been at the forefront of ocean exploration for four decades. 
She was the chief scientist for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the 1990s, and the first woman in that position. She started two companies involved in deep sea exploration, and I don't know where she has the time for it, but she's also an author, most recently of Ocean, an Illustrated Atlas. And at age 17, when most kids are becoming new drivers, this teenager was itching to be a new diver, and she did just that with something called a helmet dive. Diving with a copper diving helmet when my brother conspired with our next door neighbor, whose father was a sponge diver, and we borrowed the sponge diving rig, not the full suit <laughs> with all the heavy lead boots and big weight belt and all that, just the helmet and the compressor. We had zero instruction, nothing at all. It was a bunch of kids going out to dive in the Wikiwachi River to see what it was like. You were a teenager. Yeah, I was a teenager. <laughs> it was the next summer that I had a chance to try scuba. I was taking a class at Florida State University. The instructor, Harold Hum, later became my major professor. He allowed the students in his class to try several forms of diving. We used a system called the Desco mask. There was a compressor on the surface, a mask that fit over your face, and we were attached by about a 100-foot hose, an airline. We didn't go as much as 100 feet, but we had that much range diving from the surface. But we also had some of the first scuba tanks in the United States. They were equipped with sort of broad straps, and the mouthpiece I could just barely stuff in my mouth, but they were basically among the first to come into the country, and we were so fortunate to have an instructor who thought it was a good idea to engage his students in ways to explore the ocean with that technology. Well, I don't know that everyone would be so fearless as, to, a, as to try out the first scuba equipment, and yet you did at, at such a young age. Would you consider that a pretty fearless, brave thing to no, do? No, not at all. It was exciting. It was just a way to get to where I wanted to be. I'd already spent a lot of time snorkeling. Well, not even snorkeling, just free diving. Uh, but to be able to breathe underwater, that was the key. Can you describe that moment when you felt, this is really what I want to be doing? maybe for the rest of my life. I don't think I thought about it as this is what I want to be doing for the rest of my life. I just thought that it was an incredible sensation. I couldn't really believe at first that you could breathe underwater. But then I found that I could. And then it was just so exciting to be able to spend time with a fish without having to bounce back to the surface every little bit for a breath of air. I could stay and be part of the action. And well, you feel weightless. You're not, of course, but you feel weightless. You could stand on one finger, do somersaults, backflips. The, the ocean holds you up. In that way, it sounds a bit like going into space. It's better because underwater, there are living things all around you. You don't have to wonder, is there life down there? Life is all around you, and every spoonful of water has critters dwelling there. <laughs> I suspect there are critters dwelling somewhere in space as well, aside from this part of the solar system. But underwater, you know, even though it's, quotes, extraterrestrial, we are underwater, <laughs> it is a part of this planet, the dominant part of the planet. Now, you're particular to night dives, and what is it about a night dive? Because it, it would seem to me that if you go deep underwater, you don't get much sunlight anyway. So what's the difference between diving in, during the day and diving at night? There's a lot of difference diving at night. Different creatures are there. And among other things, you see bioluminescent creatures. You see the firefly kind of light 
that is so common in the sea, very rare on the land, to be able to see the, the night fish on a, on a reef in particular, many of the fish that you see, the brightly colored parrotfish and surgeonfish and damselfish, they tuck in at night and usually the same place night after night. And just understanding that, seeing the, the round-the-clock behavior of creatures, getting to know them personally is, is just a real trip. It's a joy. When you think about it, all of the ocean is dark some of the time. And most of the ocean is dark all of the time, except for that bioluminescent light that is perhaps the most common form of communication on the planet. Light disappears even at the middle of the day at about a thousand feet. Some dim light goes even further down, and if you're a deep-sea fish, one with special eyes that catch the, the last photon of light, they, they can perceive up from down and darker versus lighter with their amazing eyes, uh, much deeper than we can. What's the deepest you've gone without a submarine? What's the deepest oh, dive? D- diving without a, a submarine with compressed air, there are limits physiological limits. I've gone past the limits that you're supposed to respect, but but I do do it with care. Uh, diving expeditions, I've done dives to beyond 250, 275, but that's... Meters? Or? No, no, in feet. Feet. Yeah, no, I haven't been to 100 meters on compressed air. Uh, there are problems. First of all, the nitrogen makes you silly. It really does. It, 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 even though you know to expect it and you prepare for it, some people call it a two or three martini uh, sensation or effect. Have you done the comparison? Uh, you mean have I had three martinis? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I don't think I ever have. But I know that I like to not lose control, whether it's drinking nice aged grape juice or taking deep dives. Proceed with caution. The other problem is that oxygen, our great friend, becomes a serious problem under pressure. Living underwater, uh, high levels of oxygen mean that you live in a highly inflammable (laughs) atmosphere. You you were underwater. You were the first. You were the captain of the first all-female team to live underwater. Yes, I believe in the seventies. In nineteen seventy, it wasn't designed that way. It just happened that way. I was among the scientists who responded to one of those little pieces of paper that appear on bulletin boards about, are you interested in submitting a proposal to spend two weeks underwater conducting a scientific project? If so, filled out this form, went to the Smithsonian Institution. And some of us got together and put together a proposal. There were four ichthyologists and myself. But when our proposal arrived in Washington, the reaction was a consternation. They hadn't expected women to apply. This was, if you remember, 1970, mm. 1969, the first footprints on the moon, there were no women astronauts and not too many women divers either. But there were women scientists who dived. Anyway, legend has it that the head of the program, Jim Miller, when asked finally, came down to his decision, shall there or shall there not be women participating in this project. He said, well, half the fish are female, half the dolphins, half the... I guess we could put up with a few women. (laughs) And that's how it happened. 
what did you what did you live in? Was it like a, a, a submarine and underwater igloo? What, what, I'm trying to get a picture of where you lived. Two cylinders, vertically oriented. Imagine trailers, but mm-hmm. standing on end. <laughs> it looked like a big kitchen appliance, actually, and we joked about that because it had a cord that went all the way to the surface, about 600 feet away. We were located uh, 50 feet underwater and made excursions down to as much as 150 feet, 1,000 feet away. We went about a quarter of a mile away. It was really amazing. We had a a glorious time. People had the most amazing predictions about what would happen with the women's team. They thought we would argue, that we'd fight. We had questions like, did you wear makeup? Did you dry your hair? Uh, (laughs) I mean, nothing about the science. We had to take advantage of their interest in us as a curiosity and build on that to convey something about the important issues. That's really how it worked. We got their attention and then slid in some information about why the oceans matter. Hang on, or should I say hang five, like those crazy Santa Cruz surfers over there. We'll hear more about why the oceans matter from oceanographer Sylvia Earle and others. Hey, Seth, look, here's a little fishbone. You know that song, um, the knee bone is connected to the thigh bone, the thigh bone is connected to the the, hip bone. Yeah, them bones, them dry bones, but I've never heard that with regard to fish, Molly. No, but it got me thinking that all the oceans are connected. The Pacific Ocean, where we're standing right here, doesn't stand by itself. Yeah, well, that's true. The oceans form a continuous body. Okay, let's see if we can trace it. So, picture yourself at the top of the world, and you're at the Arctic Ocean. Right, it covers the North Pole. Right. The Arctic meets the Pacific, the North Pacific, at a place called... The Bering Sea, at a place called the Bering Strait, named after Vitus Bering, who kind of discovered it in 1728. Okay, so go from the North Pacific, then go south to the South Pacific. Which is the scene for many movies about being stranded on a beautiful island or the Pacific campaign of the Second World War. That's where the South Pacific meets the Atlantic at what's called... The Drake Passage, just south of the Strait of Magellan. Sir Francis Drake had his ship blown off course down into the passage in the early part of the 16th century. Now, cross the southern reaches of that ocean of the Atlantic until you meet the Indian Ocean off the southern tip of Africa. Can you picture it? Yeah, but you never hear anything about the South Atlantic, Molly. They make musicals about the South Pacific, but not the South Atlantic. I guess that's because there aren't many islands down there with palms swing gently in the breeze. I think it'd be too cold. Okay, so now travel west from where the Indian Ocean meets the South Atlantic, where we are, until you get around New Zealand and somewhere around Indonesia, that Indian Ocean meets the Pacific. The Pacific, the Indian, the Atlantic, all touch the Southern Ocean, south of 60 degrees latitude, dude. (laughs) And now we're at the bottom of the world. We started at the top. Arctic to North Pacific to South Pacific to the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean to the Southern Ocean. Yep, that's right. They're all connected. Water, water everywhere. Nor any drop to drink. Samuel Coleridge wrote that. I know. Hey, do you know why we can't drink ocean water, Molly? Well, it's salty. That's part of it. Yeah, Yeah, well, that is part of it. But I'll tell you the rest. But first, you're listening to Are We Alone? Science Radio for Thinking. Or Swimming. Species on Any World. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. 
Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Are We Alone? And Seth was just explaining why when more than 70% of the world is covered in water, we can't drink this water. Right. It's salt water, which I dare say is self-evident. But having blood that's saltier than the liquid inside our cells will cause those cells to dehydrate. Literally, they'll lose water, they'll shrivel up and shrink, and that's not good for you. A little bit of salt isn't much of a problem. Our kidneys can remove it from food or drink. So if you swallow a little bit of ocean water, if you're swimming, that's okay? Yeah, of course, that's okay. But if you kept drinking it, well, that would overwhelm your kidneys. It's sure death if you only drank the ocean's water. So, you know, next time uh, you're in a life raft and dehydrated, don't order a glass of seawater. Wait for it to rain, Molly. Well, there may be another reason not to drink seawater, Seth, even if you could, and, and that's because it has more pollution than it once did from oil, toxins, and other contaminants. Our lifestyle habits in just the last 50 years are dealing the oceans a serious blow. And as oceanographer Sylvia Earle emphasized, we need our oceans. They give us, and all the creatures around us, life. Given how much water there is on this planet, it's been remarked that our planet is not properly named, that it should be called ocean or water instead of of (laughs) Earth. I wonder if you could just remind us how we are connected to the oceans in such a profound way. It doesn't matter where on the planet you are, you're connected to the sea. Every breath you take, most of the oxygen in the air we breathe, that you breathe, comes from the sea, 70%. We do look to vegetation on the land. Some people refer to the rainforests as the lungs of the planet. And certainly they contribute, importantly, to the atmosphere, grabbing carbon, uh, expelling generating oxygen, but far and away, the, the greatest source of oxygen on the planet is from the little green guys out in the ocean. The water, most of the water on the planet, 97% of Earth's water is ocean. When rain falls out of the sky, it comes from the sea. Of course, again, it is generated by vegetation on the land. Um, plants transpire water back to the atmosphere. But far and away the greatest abundance of whatever is up in the clouds comes from the ocean. Take away the ocean, you take away climate, you take away weather, you take away life. Without the ocean there could be no life. If You never see your heart either. Most people don't see their heart. (laughs) But you know it, it keeps you alive. Most people on the planet, well if they don't see the ocean they they might see in a photograph. Many people never even know that the ocean exists but they're still reliant on the sea for their, for their life. When we look at the pictures and, and the descriptions of, of the fish stock, I mean, how many fish there used to be just even 50 years ago or so, 100 years ago, and then how many there are now, especially the big fish. One of the things you said is the good news in all of this is that 10% of the big fish still remain. 10%, and yet you're calling that the good news. Well, they're not all gone yet. The glasses. 10% full. It's not half full. But, it, I mean, it would be better if we had understood the limits and applied common sense to what we could extract from the sea and also what we put into the sea. And this is just within the last, what, 50, 50 years? years? 50 yes, years, yes, right. And actually, we began to behave in an irresponsible fashion long before that, I would say 500 years. We had pretty much done in the big 
mammals in the sea by 1900. It was not until 1986 that a moratorium on commercial whaling came into effect, and there's some countries, Japan, Norway, Iceland, that still insist on taking whales, and they still insist that it's possible to do so commercially. In the face of common sense, we've demonstrated that that's not possible Although or people, desirable. People will present you with the economic argument that humans are animals on this planet too and they need to eat. So how do you balance that? And can you, can you give me an example of where you're able to balance fishing and, and the needs of humans with the health of the ocean? Is it, is it sustainable in any way? Surely you're not suggesting that people just stop fishing altogether. I think we need to stop the large-scale industrial destructive fishing, period. It doesn't mean you have to stop fishing. And this is not about feeding your family, feeding your community, or catching a fish for dinner once in a while. But it's amazing that you can go to restaurants in the most distant places from the sea and find shrimp is everywhere. Lobsters, not just as an occasional treat, but every day in every restaurant in every big city and every country in the world, the ocean cannot continue to sustain that. To the tunas, we have taken them down to less than 10%. The bluefin tuna is in particular peril, but when you think about what does it take to make a bluefin tuna, a yellowfin tuna, any of the tunas, there are about 60 variations on the theme of tuna-like fish that is, these high-speed open ocean creatures that are top carnivores. And when you look at the ocean, the wild creatures that we tend to take from the sea, most of them are carnivores. Halibut, tuna, swordfish, grouper, snapper. And the investment is huge when you think of pounds of plants at one end of the food chain. For, for chicken cultivated, it's about two pounds of plants. Cultivated catfish, about two pan, pounds of plants, or tilapia. But for a tuna, 100,000 pounds of plants. They take six years to mature. They may be, well, they used to get to be 20 or even 30 years old, and 1,000 pounds or 1,500 pounds for some of the big bluefins. They rarely get to that size anymore because they're caught before they're allowed to mature to their full potential. But even if they're only 400 pounds, the price they can get in a market, Tokyo fish market, for example, makes it worth taking them, even when they're fairly young and even when they're only hundreds of pounds, not, not to their full potential. But no matter how you slice it, it's not efficient to eat carnivores. We don't raise carnivores to eat because it isn't, it isn't cost-effective. Also, when you think about the carbon cost of taking these big old carnivores out of the sea. Huh, tunas, I say they might be six or 10 or 20, or even if you find a big old one, it might be 30 years old. Halibut may be 50 years old. California deep sea rockfish may be 80 years old. Orange roughy that is in my local supermarket in Oakland, California, eight ninety nine a pound, maybe 100 years old. Some orange roughy have been aged to be more than 200 years old. You can do them in and a 20-minute meal tastes delicious, but the crime against the ocean is huge, not just because you're taking these big old fish, carbon-based units that are part of what the cycle that makes it possible for the ocean to function as a carbon sink 
We're, we're talking about food chains that are long and complicated that develop over, have developed over hundreds of millions of years that we have systematically destroyed in 50 years. I mean, it's just in, insane. The good thing about humans is that we're versatile. We're omnivorous. We can eat just about anything and get away with it. That's not true. There are a lot of things we can't eat. But we have a wide range of options. Many of the creatures in the sea have narrow ranges of options. Molly's been speaking with oceanographer Sylvia Earle, and we'll hear more from her later. Boy, we're under the boardwalk here. Those uh, sea lions are really cute, Molly. Yeah, they are, and they pack quite a smell, too. <laughs> well, they're not that cute, I guess. Look how big he is over there. Yeah. <laughs> how can he be so big and so cute? <laughs> yeah, these seals around here are California sea lions and harbor seals. Any, any great seal of the state of California here, Molly? <laughs> <laughs> they're just some of the marine creatures that depend on the health of the oceans. Oh, look, he just dived in the water. I guess he's looking for a meal. Well, we've heard a lot about how the life in the oceans is changing, and some of that future change is going to be due to global warming. I say warming because, you know, one way the oceans will respond to climate change is to simply warm up. All right, you know that. But changes in their actual chemistry? Now, that came as a surprise to Sven Husaby when his November 2006 issue of The New Yorker arrived on his doorstep. And like many citizens, I thought that I was on top of these kinds of, of issues, the condition of the world. And then I read an article by Elizabeth Colbert in The New Yorker called The Darkening Sea. And I was absolutely bowled over. I was shocked. In her article, Elizabeth Colbert reported on an unfortunate factor of modernization. We dump a lot of CO2 in the oceans. CO2, the byproduct of burning oil in engines, burning coal, and... The oceans become a sink, a place to store all that CO2, which, of course, alters the chemistry, the pH balance. Since the Industrial Revolution, uh, mid-19th century, the pH of the oceans has actually decreased 30%. And once I began to take that in, I realized that this did not bode well for the many creatures of the sea that I had always taken for granted. Well, many of us have had our moments of being alarmed about what's happening to the planet. But once he put down that magazine, Sven Husaby took his concern beyond just emailing the article to friends. He said that as a dour Norwegian, he's rarely shocked. But he was shocked. He had never heard of ocean acidification, and Google searches back then yielded rather few entries. He felt he had to do something. So he made a film, and he's not even a filmmaker, but his wife, Barbara Edinger, is. The result is their documentary, A Sea Change, about ocean acidification. At some point, once you got rolling with this film, you actually went to Elizabeth Colbert's house. What did you learn from her, and why did you feel the need to see her personally? First of all, I just wanted to meet her because I wanted to say thank you. And Barbara and I, in fact, had gone to hear her speak, and we were very taken not only by the power of what she had to say, but we were also taken by the fact that the seriousness of what she had to say was taking a toll on her. It's as if you felt she was living what she was learning in some emotional way. Well, let's get a sense of the process of what's happening here. Now, we all mm -hmm. know that CO2, carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. ends up in our atmosphere, and mm -hmm. this is one of the components that are warming our planet in the atmosphere. How does it end up in our oceans? Well, carbon dioxide is a gas and mixes in the air. 
and the air sits cheek to jowl with our oceans and water absorbs gases out of the air. I, I always have to remind anyone I'm speaking with that I'm not a scientist. And the ocean's capacity to absorb those gases is a function of temperature. The colder the water, the more it can absorb. So as you move towards the poles in either direction, its ability to absorb CO2 is increased. The CO2, the carbon dioxide, then mixes with water and forms carbonic acid. Now we're all familiar with carbonic acid. If we've had sparkling water or consumed a soda, and what the carbonic acid then does when it gets in the ocean is it interacts with calcium carbonate. And calcium carbonate, we know it more generally as chalk. It's the material that crustaceans and any marine organisms that need to build shells for themselves. We're familiar with the ones towards the top of the food chain, crabs, lobsters, langoustines, whatever. What we're less familiar with but it's even more important is what's at the lower end of the food web, uh, which would be zooplankton, pteropods, uh, coccolithophores. These are words I didn't know when I started this project. <laughs> These are creatures that I didn't know. And, well, and creatures you can't see sometimes without... Well, exactly. And now I'm having a mad love affair with pteropods of all shapes and forms and colors and sizes. And, know, a, I, and a pteropod in, in one sentence is... A pteropod is a zooplankton. It's a, plankton are drifters. They don't uh, move of their own accord, but drift with the currents. And they're the, a little bit smaller than your little fingernail, most of them. And some of them are known as sea butterflies or sea angels because they have these almost diaphanous wings that move them along with the currents. And to look at them... <laughs> Forgive me, but I mean that really was has been my love affair with this project is learning to know a little bit more about the unbelievable diversity uh, in the oceans. And Say more about about that link, though, if you would. You said that the lives of these these tiny animals that you've fallen in love with are in danger because of what's happening to our oceans. Our oceans are becoming more acidic. Mm-hmm. How is that process threatening these marine organisms? Well, because. If the organisms do not have sufficient calcium carbonate, they are not able to form shells of a type that they've evolved to wear over millennia, and their shells become weaker and weaker. And so the the acid in the oceans, the acidification of the oceans is wearing out those shells. They're not able to... It's not so much wearing out the shells as it's making it harder and harder for them to find the amount of calcium carbonate that they need because the calcium carbonate is diminished and therefore they're compromised in their ability to build an adequate shell. Now, one of the tricks in this film, and you say this, is the struggle to bring this message home to a general audience. So you said in the film that you wanted to find a way to explain this process. And and I think you sat down with some soda and some baby teeth. Can you explain that experiment and what you learned? Well, I have a friend. An image that I, I have will sit with everyone. I have a friend who's an environmental activist in Alaska, Deborah Williams. And I literally called Deborah. I said, Deborah, how do you explain this whole issue of acidification to grab people's attention. She said, well, I've actually been using something when I've been speaking in Alaska. It's slightly different, but it's fair, and it works. She said, it's not calcium carbonate, it's calcium phosphate, the material that we make teeth out of, but that's much harder 
than calcium carbonate. We can take and put some of that in soda water, or we can actually put it in soda and see what happens to it. Did you put actual teeth in, in soda water? We put real teeth. She called some friends at other environmental groups and asked if any of them had small children and did they happen to have some extra teeth that had already been paid for. The tooth fairy had already made a deposit and as a result the teeth were available. And sure enough she collected a handful of baby teeth and we literally, in front of my eyes, did these experiments. So you dropped the teeth in some soda water, yep. bubbly soda water, yep. and, and left, then you, you also it dropped in. it in some soda? Yeah. Yeah, well, the soda, you know, ate it up, just ate them up in days. I mean, literally, the teeth were gone. The soda water, which is a much higher pH, that is, it's less acidic than the soda, it took three weeks and led to a major crack opening up right down through the middle of the tooth, the crack that went completely through it, and you could see it. Now, mind you, the ocean is not that acidic, but this is what happens as you increase the acidity, and it's on a smaller scale that this is what's occurring to a calcium carbonate that might be available for something else in the oceans. Well, certainly it's also a reminder not that we should not be drinking soda because of what it does to our teeth. Do you have any correlation of what the pH is? Did you, did you know what the pH of the soda, the soda water, and, and, and what the pH of the ocean is right now and where we yeah. want it? The pH of the oceans right now is, well, it varies. The actual pH of the oceans up to the Industrial Revolution was approximately 8.2. And when you give these numbers... People who aren't scientists say, these are tiny numbers. How can this make any difference? Well, the fact is, yes, they are tiny numbers, but pH scales are logarithmic. Which means they increase by a factor of, of 10. 10. Exactly. So when you go from 8.2 to 8.1, you have moved towards acidity at a level of 30%. And as we increase the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, we're going to increase the amount of CO2 that's absorbed and the carbonic acid that's formed in the ocean and damage that we've seen to date. I spoke with one scientist that come back from the South Pole. She had picked up crabs there that you could stick your finger through as if it was an autumn leaf. And these are the crabs that not many years ago had shells of the type that we're used to when we go to a fish market and buy a full-blown crab. There's another character in your film who is important to the film. He's five years old. He's your grandson. His name is Elias. In the film, you, write, you actually write a letter to him about your concerns about the future and, and, and trying to find the words and to, to explain to him what is happening to our world and what is happening to the oceans. Of course, the film itself could be seen as an open letter to your grandson and also to anyone else, the audience who goes to see it. What have you said to him about what is happening to our oceans, and, and what has he said to you, and what sort of response has he given to you? To be honest, I've held back a little bit because the final letter is the film to him. And he has seen the film in its rough forms. He knows the subject. So not only does he care about the ocean, he loves it intensely and it's almost frightening how much he knows about it in bits and pieces. He never ceases to amaze me. Why did you hold back on telling him what's happening to the oceans, and, and what aspects of it did you hold back on? I think I held back because of something that Elizabeth Colbert said to me. 
towards the end of the time I spent with her, I asked her, I said, how do you talk with your children about this? And she said, I'm quite open with my children, she said, but not long ago, one of my sons said to me, I feel that I was born too late. The world has become a degraded place. And she said, that was very hard, very hard to think of. And I came to the conclusion with Elias that there is a careful line there. I mean, he's going to pick up a great deal. He's going to learn a great deal. But I didn't feel that in a pointed way to talk about some of the fears and concerns that I had about this issue was something I was ready to lay right there on his plate. And I think the film raises the question. Uh, it raises many questions. I think the film says there are infinite reasons for caring about the ocean. And I know that for him, going through the experience of making the film has embedded that, if you will, in, in who he is as a person. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Sven Husseby is the co-producer and participant in the documentary, A Sea Change, directed by his wife, Barbara Edinger. There's a link to the film on our website, radio.seti.org. Up next, before you're totally at sea with all the sobering news about our ocean's reason for hope, it sees the moment on Are We Alone? Science radio for thinking species, wet or dry, on any world. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we're walking here at the interface between the land and ocean, Molly, better known as the beach. And it's kind of a beautiful day. There are people strewn all across the sand here, lots of birds. Actually, this wind is making my nose run a little. I hope that's all it is and I don't have a cold. That kid over there looks like he has a cold. What's his mom giving him? I don't know, something to drink and a pill. I hope that pill's not an antibiotic. I mean, if he has a cold. Yeah, that's right, because the cold is caused by a virus. That's right, and antibiotics work on bacteria, not viruses. Of course, it doesn't stop people from overusing antibiotics. And the consequence is that the bacteria become more resistant through genetic mutation. So by overusing these medicines, we're helping to engineer their tougher progeny. Indeed, some bacteria have near total resistance to today's antibiotics. But there's hope, and we're standing near the laboratory where it's found. See out there, Seth? What do you see? A, a bunch of boats. Okay. What you can't see is that there's a whole ocean of microbes, tiny bits of life out there that contain molecules that can help us. Peter Moeller is something called a toxin and natural products chemist at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And he said that scientists are hoping to one day farm new antibiotics and other drugs from the seas out there. Well, those are for humans, right? Not for fish. That's right, for humans. Well, that's kind of interesting, but why would we turn to the ocean for these new drugs? You know, that's a great question. Oh, it's a great question. Uh, the ocean is a huge untapped reservoir of biologically active molecules we call drugs. All drugs are biologically active in one way or another, and the ocean is untapped. It's a huge reservoir of biological species, 
Um, and each of these have their own compounds associated with living and dying. For instance, the microbial community of the ocean uh, represents a huge percentage of the Earth's biomass, and they're all producing chemicals that we may be able to use. Well, the one that we're particularly interested in are the ones are the antibiotics. Is that right? That's correct. In our research on coral disease, we have found that uh, bacteria involved in coral health, death, or, or dying are fighting each other uh, with chemical warfare, what we recognize as antibiotics. And uh, these antibiotics, we may be able to tease them out of this process and actually shunt them over to the human health industry. Now, these are, these are chemicals that evolved with the corals to either protect them or um, that they could use it in their own defenses how is it that they could be used in the human body? Well, antibiotics are a function to take out pathogens. Um, first of all, they, the corals actually use bacteria to produce these antibiotics, okay? And what th these bacteria are doing, they want to live happily just like you and I do. And so they have to ward off this constant bacterial uh, and infection from uh, all the other microbes in the ocean that are constantly bombarding it. And they do it in the same way we do. Once there's an infection, they've got to do something. They've got to de design some chemical means to get rid of this enemy. And it turns out that uh, most bacteria behave in very similar fashion, so that antibiotics that work in the ocean also work against microbes on, on, in human health. Now, one of the reasons that you're looking for this is that we're in a bit of a, a crisis now as we near the, close the gate on antibacterial resistance, meaning we're becoming more and more resistant to antibacterial drugs, and so it's urgent that we have these new sources. Yes, this is a, that's a very good point. The current thought right now is that the overuse of antibiotics in our society results in a lot of antibiotic resistance, and, and a lot of these chemicals, these antibiotics that we use in washing our hands, the antibiotics in hair creams and whatever, ultimately end up in the ocean. So. Uh, First of all, there's their direct human link. We're making them immune to our antibiotics, and so they're creating new ones to work with, which we want to bring back. So you're saying we're, we're making the, the ocean organisms immune to our antibiotics? It appears that way, yes. Yes, the antibiotics that we're spilling, on our, we can measure them, we know they're there, we can see them uh, in some of our analyses, and we're finding more and more resistance in bacteria in the ocean as well. So turning it to the good side is, well, if they're able to adapt and still defend their territory, they are adapting and making new antibiotics that we in turn want to turn around and hopefully use more wisely and, and incorporate them into human health. Where have our sources of antibiotics come up to this point? I mean, antibiotics are, are chemicals that are produced mm -hmm. by bacteria. Has it been plant sources or terrestrial, on terrestrial plant sources? Most of the current antibiotics that we use today come from terrestrial sources such as fungi and, and the like. Very few have actually originated from the ocean, so we are only scratching a very big surface in what's out there for us to use. I always call the ocean our largest untapped pharmacy. So. It also gives you a sense of how connected we all are. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's uh, amazing. Some of the work done at NOAA is actually looking at infection in dolphins and manatees and whales. And so this topic is actually very germane. And they're mammals, and they are going to behave in very similar fashion that we do uh, with this antibiotic resistance issue. Are there any particular antibiotics that have been cultured so far for an infection in particular or a bacteria in particular? In other words, um, have there been any successful drugs yet that have come from the ocean? Um, if I said no, somebody would point one out. I'm not aware of, of too many at this time, and a lot of that is, again, uh, the difficulty in getting them through the trials. 
one of the difficulties in developing a new drug, a new antibiotic or new uh, chemotherapeutic, is that you have to have enough material. And we are now just able to even culture a lot of the bacteria from the sea. Only 1% of all marine bacteria are culturable in the lab, mass-producing a compound, for instance. And so we have to get over that hurdle before we can go too far, or we have to learn how to synthesize the chemicals as we um, define them. Right, which means making an artificial That's correct. An artificial replica one. in the That's lab. Correct. Now, how do you go about culturing, and why is it so difficult to culture these bacteria oh, from the ocean? You're talking to a chemist here, so I really don't know. I do know that the marine world has a lot of miners in the water. We call them miners. These are compounds, metals, uh, whatever, that we, 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 don't, we can't even see. Is it M-I-N-O-R-S or E-R-S? ORS, sorry, thank you. Miners. <laughs> Miners. They're minor components that we think a lot of these bacteria require for survival. And we don't know what they are. They're, they're below our, the detection limits of our analytical equipment in many cases. And so we may be able to culture them in seawater for a little while, but uh, normally when we take them out of the marine environment, they're just not culturable. Now you're a scientist who studies the oceans or the chemicals that are produced in the oceans. Do you also interact with the oceans? Are you a diver? Oh. Or are you? How do you... When I was What's your wore, favorite ocean activity? <laughs> when I was a younger man and wore a younger man's shoes, I did a lot of diving and I did a lot of, loved fish in Minnesota, loved to ice fish. Uh, but uh, as I've gotten older now, I, I let the younger crowd do the diving and, and, and take that abuse. It, it was a lot of fun, but it's also a lot of work. It's not a trivial exercise to collect an ID and observe. And uh, as a chemist, one of the things I've learned to appreciate, I, I make fun of biologists with a lot of humor, but uh, the observational skills where we're looking for new antibiotics and new drugs they are really important. You need people who can make the connection, hey, look, look at that and then look at the effect. And cause and effect is critical in defining a starting point for a new discovery. And that's your job in the lab? That's my job in the lab. They, they leave me locked up, <laughs> yes ma'am. Okay. Thank you very much. My pleasure, my pleasure. Peter Moeller is a toxin and natural products chemist at NOAA. So Seth, the oceans present a world of discovery, as Peter Mulder says, just like space. Yep, and just like space, there's still a vast region to be discovered, Molly. And the growing push to do so is reason to hope that we can be better stewards of these watery resources. And that brings us back to Sylvia Earle. During all her campaigning on behalf of the oceans, she got one project started that gives us all greater access to the seas. And she did it by going to Silicon Valley and giving a kick in the pants, well, rather a light one, to a well-known high-tech company. You went to the Google Earth people recently. This is part of the way our, our understanding of the oceans are changing. And you said that they had done well with part of the planet because they had created Google Earth. What, what did you say to them and what did you propose? My connection with Google Earth happened quite by chance. I was asked to give a talk at a conference in Spain and so was the man who heads the phenomenon known as Google Earth, John Hankey. I had a chance to publicly say how much I love Google Earth. My kids love it. My grandkids love it. And it just popped out. I didn't intend to say it, but I did. I said, John, I hope someday you'll finish it. You've done a great job with the dirt. You can go to your backyard, your neighbor's backyard. You can fly down the Grand Canyon. You can find Starbucks. But when are you going to finish it? The blue part, the ocean is missing. He said it was like getting stabbed in the heart and said, okay, what, what should we do? To his credit, I mean, he could have just brushed me off and said, yeah, right, <laughs> but he didn't. He said, well, uh, let's see what we can do, and invited me to give a tech talk at Google. And that was the birth of Google Oceans? That's when it started. I said, first you need a map, and therefore you should go talk to the Navy. They have the bathymetry, but it's not good enough just to have the map. The ocean is not rocks and water alone. You need to see that the ocean is alive. 
What, what exists now is a platform is, that is just going to get better. We've only mapped about 5% of the seafloor in any kind of detail. When you look at Google Earth, it looks like it's pretty good. You know, you see the mountains, the valleys, but when you try to bore down, you'll find that a lot is still missing or it's still kind of blurry because the resolution is still not very good. What is it? They say we have better maps of Mars. Better Coming maps of the Mars, Mars, of Jupiter, <laughs> of the moons, so surely. Oceans. And part of the reason is because the ocean is there. You can't see through the ocean and use the same techniques that we can apply elsewhere. Seeing with sound acoustically makes it possible to, in a refined sense, get details of the ocean floor, but very small amount of the ocean has been, as they say, insonified, that is, to be closely inspected using sound. It's going to take a while, but that's one of the challenges of our time, to develop the technology to truly map the ocean floor in detail and to, and to photograph it and to explore it. We need expeditions to be able to take people physically as well as remotely with underwater remotely operated systems, cameras and the like. The greatest era of exploration on this planet is just beginning. The ocean, uh, when you describe these maps, it really is a challenge to our sense of distance and what we take for granted. For example, we're here in San Francisco, seven miles from here, is Marin or perhaps the, the South Bay. Someone could run seven miles. Backwards. I can't. Backwards. <laughs> On one foot. <laughs> but seven miles deep in the ocean, where does that take you? There's one place I know I think you can go Mariana seven miles. Trench. Actually, there, there are trenches around parts of the Pacific that are essentially seven miles deep, but the deepest place that we know is the Challenger Deep, the Mariana Trench off uh, west of the, or rather east of the Philippines. Is that on it's, Google Oceans? It is on Google Ocean, and only two people have been to the deepest part of the sea, seven miles down, and that was in 1960, before there were footprints on the moon. Mm. But one trip that lasted about half an hour, two people, and then we, it's been put aside. It's sort of like, well, we've been there, we've done that. <laughs> we haven't done it. Uh, we have done it, we've been there, but we haven't really explored it. Japan sent a robot down that they designed and built and it made several excursions, but they lost their robot at sea during a storm several years ago, and it hasn't been replaced since. And they're certainly the Trieste, the vehicle that took Don Walsh and Jacques Picard to the deepest part of the sea in 1960 has not been replaced with an equivalent. Uh, people are dreaming about it, working on it, and I think that within the next decade, surely, maybe within the next five years, maybe even sooner, there will be access to the deep sea again. We need working access, and we need more than just a handful of, of vehicles. We need to have regular access. Think of what we can do in the skies above, because we have access. We see the world with new eyes. We need to see the blue part of the planet with new eyes. Perhaps if the ocean is no longer a black box, if we have ways of, of people seeing is believing and people can see the ocean, it's no longer invisible, even though it's all around us, maybe our relationship to it will change. That's my hope. That's my dream. Sylvia Earle, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on board. Sylvia Earle is an oceanographer, a National Geographic Exploring Residence, and founder of the Deep Search Foundation. Also, author of the book, Ocean and Illustrated Atlas. 
And that's it for our show. You've been listening to Seize the Moment on Are We Alone? We'd like to thank Barbara Vance and Gary Niederhoff for never leaving us high and dry. And to the NASA Astrobiology Institute and to the SETI Institute, where the search for life elsewhere in the universe means understanding the role of water and making life possible on our own planet. And a big wave to the Pacific Ocean for being our host today. You're big and blue and just so benthic. You make me want to seize the moment. Now for Are We Alone's seals of approval. Uh, uh, uh.